Well, we continue in our series in 1 Peter. Last week we looked at those verses from chapter 3 that I included them again this week just to give us the context. This morning we're going to start in chapter 4 and look at the first six verses. But I want to remind you again that Peter has been telling us that our calling is to put Jesus on display to the world by the way we relate to the people in our world. He says this in 1 Peter 2. He said, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And last week I, I drew a big J up here on the chart and I, and I told you that that leaving us an example was uh, the idea of tracing a letter, learning, learning to write our letters. And so uh, a perfect letter would be written. This is not one. And then leaving us an example, Jesus left us the perfect example of what a suffering for a suffering love for others looks like. And then we are to trace our lives on top of his example. And so last week we said that this is what it looks like to suffer. We take the low place and love people the way Jesus laid down his life to love people. We, we go down. We take the low place. While we hope for the day when with Jesus, we share glory. That's what the Jesus-shaped life looks like. And that's what Peter's calling us to do. Our calling is to put the suffering love of Jesus on display to the world by the way we suffer to love others in our world. And he continues that theme this morning, so let's pray. Father, what... What a huge calling you have given us that we would trace uh, our lives, that we would trace the way we love according to the pattern of Jesus, that we would, as Jesus said and we read this morning, that we would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Um, You are asking us to do something that we can't do without your help. We are absolutely unable uh, to live and love like Jesus unless Jesus does that through us. So we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come by the power of your Spirit and help us to see a little more of a picture this morning of, of what that might look like, what this calling is you've given us. And would you enable us uh, to be shaped uh, like you? to have our hearts shaped by your Spirit into the heart of Jesus. Wow. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, where are all my middle schoolers? Raise your hand if you're a middle schooler. Where are all my high school students? I see that hand. How about some college-age people? whether you're a student or not, but you're in that age. 
and, and they, they were like this. Uh, yes, um, thank you. Um, I, I just, as I was preparing for this message, I, I want you to know, I want you guys specific, specifically, middle school, high school, college age folks, that you have been particularly on my heart lately. Um, and in fact, you've actually been on the heart of your elders lately. We, the elders, Saturday a week ago, spent about eight hours together, or eight or nine hours together, uh, just thinking together, praying together, talking together about our church, about our vision, our mission, uh, and we spent almost, maybe at least a quarter, maybe a third of our time talking about the next generation in our church, uh, particularly about middle school, high school, college age folks. Um, we love you guys. And um, so as I thought about that and I came to this passage this morning, um, I thought about my heart as a father, but also for 30 years before I took this position as your pastor, I was, I've been a youth pastor um, for a long time. So uh, my heart for the next generation uh, is big, and I, and I love you guys. And so I thought of you as I started preparing for this message because uh, it, it so clearly applies to the next generation, but I don't want you to think that your parents and the other adults in this room are off the hook. Even if I'm speaking specifically to uh, teenagers and young folks, uh, all of us have been called as your parents and as your brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside you uh, to help see what God will do in your life in the time that we have with you. So, hang on. I'll go after the parents and adults at the very end, okay? But they're going to listen because all of this that I'm going to say applies to them too. So, one of my great concerns for you guys is that, as Peter says here in chapter 4, verse 1, um, that that we as your parents and other adults in the church help you to do what he says. He says, arm yourselves with a certain way of thinking. No, no, let's, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had when he suffered. Now, think about this for a second. My first question is, Peter, why do I need to arm myself? Why do I need to take up weapons? What is, what is this about? Uh, because we're under attack. You guys are under attack. Back in chapter 2, Peter said this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, uh, the, the, the sinful pass passions that we have in our hearts, which wage war against your soul. Believe it or not, folks, you are under attack. And the attack is coming from the inside. He says, your, the passions of your flesh, your me first heart, are waging war against your soul. So in order to understand a little bit about what he means by 
these passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, because he's going to bring them up again in this chapter. I want us to step back just for a minute and zoom way out so that we can remember that the, remember the story that God has us all in. Um, I remember Frodo in the, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, maybe it was Samwise, said, um, it's a strange tale we've fallen into, Mr. Frodo. And you are in a strange tale, but I'm about to help you remember what it is again. Forgive me if you've heard some of this before, but we have to, we have to kind of back up for a second in order, I think, to better understand what Peter's about to say to us. So, the first chapter of the story, as you know, is creation. And yes, you do have to have a PhD in Egyptian hieroglyphics to read my writing. But I'm sure you all have that. Look, we were created... I'm just going to use this little stick figure person uh, to represent us. You remember, all the way back in Genesis, we were created for a relationship with God, with people. I'll just use the letter P to represent people. And with all that God made, C for creation. We were made to use ourselves to love and serve God, to love and serve people, and to love and serve all that God has made. That's what we were made for. And I like to call that living with a you-first heart. We were created for a you-first life where we look at God, we look at all the people around us, and we look at all that God has made, and we say, you first. We use ourselves to love God, to love people, and to love all that he has made. But you know that in the next chapter of the story, what we call the fall, remember, Adam and Eve sinned against God and rebelled against him, and their relationship with God was broken, their relationship with each other was broken, and even their relationship with all that God made was broken. And now, instead of the arrows pointing away from us to God and people and creation, we have made the arrows point inward to us. Someone once said that sin curves you in on yourself. And so now, instead of, um, instead of living a you-first life, Adam and Eve, and now all of us who are their children, live a me-first life. And so instead of what we are created to do, using ourselves to love and serve God and love and serve people and love and serve creation, now we try to use God and use people and use God's creation to love and serve ourselves. This is the reality of what it's like to live in a fallen world with a fallen heart. This is where we are. Ah, but there's good news. Jesus came to redeem us and restore us. Look, Peter said this in, uh, we read it this morning in chapter 3, verse 18. 
Christ also suffered once for sins, once for our me-first sins. The righteous, Jesus, who perfectly lived a you-first life of loving God and loving others. Uh, The righteous for the unrighteous, us. So there was an exchange. Jesus exchanged himself and his righteous life for us and our unrighteous life so that he might bring us to God. And he was put to death in the flesh, but he didn't stay dead. He resurrected. So when Jesus came and suffered on the cross, he lived the cross-shaped life of loving God and loving others. He lived the perfect you-first life that we were created to live, but didn't. But he also took on himself the punishment for our living the me-first life that he never lived, but he paid for it. That's the story that you live in. Jesus has done that to redeem and restore you to what you were originally made to do with your life, to live a you-first life. So now, where where do these these, uh, sinful passions come in? Well, now Jesus has come in by his Spirit to anyone who receives him and trusts that he did this for them and they've made that exchange with Jesus. He has come in and he has conquered your heart. He's taken over. But just like sometimes when our military goes into a place and they conquer an area, uh, they may have conquered it, but there are still pockets of resistance left over that try to fight um, the, uh, the conquering army. Uh, there are still pockets of resistance of our me-first heart in us, the Bible teaches, that are fighting against Jesus and his spirit. Galatians 5 says that uh, if, you're a, if you're a Christian and the spirit of Jesus lives in you, now the spirit is at war with your flesh, the me-first heart, and your me-first heart is at war with the spirit. So there's this battle going on, and that's what Peter was referring to in chapter 2 when he said to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the me-first heart, which wage war against yourself your soul. So, that brings us back to 1 Peter 4. Now, I want to make sure, grab your bulletin or your Bible and have 1 Peter 4 in front of you, 1 through 6, because we're about to blow through it really quick. Um, And I'm still, are all the middle schoolers, high schoolers, and college people still with me? Good. Great. Because I'm tired and I'm tempted to fall asleep in my own sermon. So, Hang with me, okay? So now, when Peter in 1 Peter 4.1 says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh for us, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And when it says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, he's talking about, potentially, well, he's talking about two people. He's talking about Jesus who suffered in the flesh and he ceased from sin, not because, not that he ceased from sinning, but he ceased 
from the work he was doing to rescue us from sin, but it's also talking about us. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, whoever is willing to suffer in the flesh the way Jesus has because Jesus has suffered for them, we are done with the me first life too. So, so look at this real quick. First, Peter is saying to you, my young brothers and sisters and my older ones, arm yourself with Christ's way of thinking about what he did on the cross. What's, what does Jesus think about what he did on the cross? Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. By suffering in the flesh on the cross, Jesus has dealt the death blow to your sin, to your me first heart. It's finished. His work to do that has ceased. And so, uh, Peter says, arm yourself with the suffering love of Jesus for you. Arm yourself with this truth, that he loved you so much he gave himself to death on a cross to rescue you from your me first heart. Arm yourself with that. Because when the battle comes, you need to know that first and foremost. You need to think the same way that Jesus does about what he's done for you. That he loved you so much that he suffered to separate you from your me first heart. Secondly, he means arm yourself with the same mindset and purpose of Jesus. That since Jesus suffered and died to separate you from a me first life, then you will also be willing to suffer by dying to the me first life. And you'll also be willing to suffer by giving your way, yourself away to God and to others with a you first life. So arm yourself with the suffering love of Jesus in the way you love God and love people. So Peter's saying that your me first heart is still at war against you. So you need to arm yourself with the good news that you have already been shaped by the cross of Jesus. And that by his cross, he's rescued you from being a me first shaped arrows inward person. And he's turning you into a you first shaped arrows outward to God and others person. So I want to ask you, my friends, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students, and everybody else, is this true of you? Have you said something like this to Jesus? Something like this, not exact words, but have you said something like this? Jesus, I am done with this me first life of trying to use you and use people and use all the things you've created and given me to love and serve myself. I'm done with that. And I believe, in other words, not just in my head, but I stake my life on this, Jesus, that you suffered once for my sins, giving yourself the righteous one for me, the unrighteous one, so that you would bring me to God. I stake my life on that. And I stake my life that on this, that you were put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In other words, you died on the cross for my sin, and you rose to life, and you live now. And I accept, Jesus, the exchange of your life for mine. Take my me first heart. Give me your you first heart. Have you ever said something like that to Jesus? 
Have you ever done that? And if you haven't, I, I invite you this morning, where you sit somewhere, to have that kind of conversation with him. And if you have, and if you do, then Peter says in verse 1, to get ready for the war. Arm yourself with this way of thinking. You have been shaped by the cross of Jesus. Now, in verses 2 through 6, Peter's going to show you what it looks like for your life to take the shape of the cross of Jesus. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, in the body, no longer for human passions, a me-first life, but for the will of God, a you-first life. So when your life takes the shape of Jesus' cross, you're going to live the rest of your time in the flesh, the rest of your time in the body God has given you, with a new purpose for your life. Two things in that new purpose. You're going to live no longer for human passions. Now hang on a minute. I'm going to live no longer for human passions? That's, that's crazy. What does that mean? It means that I'm crucified to this me-first life. I've taken that me-first life and I've nailed it. Jesus has nailed it to the cross. And I'm no longer going to live for that kind of life. I'm no longer going to live for a, a me-first life. What, is, what does he mean by passions? That word passions sometimes translated the word lust, but it's a desire. It's a desire. I think Dan Allender has done the best job that I can think of to define what um, these passions or lusts are. He says that lust is is a desire that is either out of bounds, in other words, God has said, don't go outside of these bounds, don't desire something that's outside of this circle. So it's desiring something that you shouldn't. But it's also it also can be a desire that is out of, out of balance. It could be a good thing that you desire, but you desire it too much. It's, it's out of balance. So when you think of lust or these, these human passions, that's what we're talking about. It's any desire that is out of bounds or out of balance. Well, then he goes on and he illustrates and paints a picture of what these human passions are in verse 3. Um, and he reminds us that these out-of-bounds and out-of-balance desires are part of our old life, not the new life that Jesus bought for us with, the, with his blood. He says in verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He's saying, look, you've spent enough time living in me first life. That's That's done. That's over. That's not who you are anymore. But then listen to this list that he gives of, of this description of the me-first life. Um, in relationship to people, he says that uh, Gentiles, who, these are people um, who are not the exiles of God. They're not part of God's church. They're God's people. They're pagans, essentially. Listen to how he describes their relationship, first of all, with people. They live in sensuality. 
That word is a word that means it's a lack of self-restraint and abandoning oneself to go outside of the moral boundaries, either in sexuality or in violence. So it's a relational word. It's this out-of-control relational use of sex and power, sex and anger. Um, But then he uses the word passions again. And in this case, he's talking about these uh, sexual desires and cravings. So first of all, people who live a me-first life, they use people for themselves. And that shows up in the way that they treat sexuality. It shows up in the way they uh, are angry or violent or the way they use their power over other people. So first of all, the me-first life is, is using people. And then he goes back to using creation. He's, he's got these three words or phrases. Drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties. It sounds like college at the university, doesn't it? Sounds like a frat party. Sorry. Um, but, but it is pretty much what it says. It's out-of-control feasts or parties. It's, it's out-of-control drinking. And he's, I think he's just using these as very common, easy examples of what it's like to use and abuse God's creation, the resources he's given us. Let's, so he takes the closest and easiest things that there are to, to abuse. Food and drink. And he says that the me first life uses what God has given us in our resources, food and drink as an example, to serve ourselves. And then finally, he says, in relationship to God, there's this thing called lawless idolatry. And you may think, well, I'm not an idol worshiper. I don't worship little objects that I've made or objects that I carry around in my pocket or anything like that. I don't depend on these things or trust these things um, for security or happiness or to give me some sort of good life. I don't depend on things like I would depend on a God. Um, We don't have temples around our culture, do we? Well, maybe, maybe we do. Maybe, maybe we have some temples that have green grass in the middle of them with white lines on them, and these guys run up and down on the grass throwing around a rotten pumpkin. I think it's called football. We don't have temples in our culture. We don't have... Temples, you know, back in those days, temples was where the restaurants were because they would serve the sacrificed meat. So if you wanted to go out to dinner, you'd go close to a temple and they would serve you the sacrificed meat. Well, we don't have temples on every corner. And we don't, we don't get sad when temples, when restaurants on our mountain burn down. We don't get mad about temples maybe being built in our community that have food and drink in them? Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. So the point is, he's showing that the me-first life, that's done. That's done. Peter says, arm yourself with this way of thinking. 
I am crucified to the me first life. I will no longer live for human passions. But then he says, arm yourself with this thinking, but I will live for the will of God. And what is the will of God? It's the two great commandments, Jesus said. Love God and love others. In the place God puts you with the resources and gifts he's given you. That's what it means to do the will of God, to live for the will of God. It means to live a you-first life. This is what Peter is saying we should arm ourselves with as we go into battle with the me-first heart. Um, arm ourselves with a commitment in, a, in a, a, the way of thinking that Jesus had, that we live for God, others, in the place he's put us with the resources he's given us. So, Peter then goes on to say, we're almost done, but Peter says, and I promise you it's true, that if you live this way, if you say no to the me first life, friends, and you say yes to the you first life, you will suffer. And it's interesting in this passage, Peter doesn't say that anybody's going to kill you. Peter doesn't say that you're going to be thrown in jail. He talks about social suffering. This is what he says. With respect to this, your refusal to live a me-first life, they, the people around you, are surprised when you do not join them. In other words, they think it's strange. That's literally what this word about being surprised means. They think it's strange when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Debauchery means wastefulness. And so they malign you. They, they literally, they blaspheme and defame you and God. So the simple commitment that you have, my friends, to live for God and not yourself will set you apart in a way that will make you strange to your friends. And some of you already know that. Some of you have already experienced it. It's not that you're spouting things on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever that you know, makes you look like some kind of holy roller and people get angry at you. It's just that you decide not to live for yourself but to live for God and others. And that very commitment is going to make you strange to your friends strange to our culture, and they will not like it. They will treat you like a stranger. They will treat you like an exile and a sojourner. And they will malign you. They will mock you and your God. It will happen. It will happen. But listen to what Peter says. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, the same flood of wastefulness. What he's describing is they're, they're upset with you for not joining them in this wide-flowing river of wasted life that they're riding on. And he says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What he's saying is, at the, end, at the end of this wide river that's rushing, this wide river of wasted life that's rushing ahead and they're just having a party as they float down this, this river, 
at the end of it is a waterfall that falls to judgment. They have no clue, or they don't care that it's coming. But you do. You know where that wide river of a wasted life leads. And you decide to swim against the stream. And some of your friends will say to you that you're wasting your life. Why? Why waste your life living for Jesus when you're just going to die like the rest of us? You're just going to die like the rest of us. So YOLO, dude, you only live once. Live it up. Here's Jimmy trying to be hip and cool and use the whatever. Um, but Peter, Peter has a response to this attitude. He says, no, no. Jesus makes a difference in the lives of people right now while they live and after they die. We, he says, we will all give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. That though they're judged in this world by people for the way they live, when they stand before the judge, he will say, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. And Peter says, arm yourself with that. Arm yourself that no matter how much your friends and your culture mock you and judge you for living the way Jesus has called you to live, you will stand before the judge who really matters one day, and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. And Peter says, keep your mind on that, friends. Keep your mind on that. Now, parents and other adults. He calls us to the same life. He calls us in our parenting to say no to the me-first life. He calls us in our marriages to say no to the me-first life. He calls us in all of our relationships, married or not. He calls us in our work relationships. He calls us in our relationship with governing authorities. He calls us in relationship with everyone to say no to a life that uses people to serve us, that uses all that God has made to serve us, and that tries to get God to serve me by giving me the good life that I really want more than I want him. The challenge for us as parents and other adults in the church is that God has designed it such that the next generation is not only taught the you first life from us, but he intends that it be caught by us as well. So friends, we're all in this together. And my middle school, high school, and college age friends, you are not alone in this calling to live this way. Your parents and the rest of us, whether we have children or not, we're called to help be a part of God shaping you by the cross into the shape of the cross. We need to pray. Father, help us. What a huge calling you have given us as a church.
And yet, again, you remind us by this table to, to take on the mindset of Jesus. When Jesus served at this table the first time, he also had a towel and served his brothers by washing their feet. In order for us to serve with a towel, the people that you've given us, we need to be served at this table by Jesus. And so, Jesus, we ask you to come by your Spirit to feed us with the good news that you have separated us from our me-first life and that you are filling us to live your you-first life in the places you've put us with the gifts and resources you've given us for your glory and for the world's good and gladness. Thanks be to God. Amen.